Good evening, everyone. We've been telling you some stories about this three-month retreat that we all sat in 2013. And this teacher from Sri Lanka named Damaruan, who tented with us every evening. And from what I remember, we would do the Karaniya Metta Sutta, just as we're doing here. And then at some point, he decided that he was going to teach us the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, which is pretty long for a chant, pretty complex. It's well known as the Buddha's first teaching. And Dhammachaka, Dhamma is Dhamma, Dharma in Sanskrit. Uh, Chaka means wheel. So the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta is the first turning of the wheel of Dhamma. He set this wheel in motion. And even in the sutta, there's these words that say, now the wheel of the Dhamma is set in motion. And it's still rolling here, still rolling in all of us. We are testament to that. And so because we love chanting so much, I thought I would chant just a little bit of this sutta for you, uh, just to begin. Katamachasa bikawe Majima patipara Tatagatena abisambura Chaku karani nyana karani Upasamaya abinyaya Sambodaya nibanaya Sangwatati Ayamewa Ario Atangiko Mago Seyatirang Samaditi Sama Sankapo Samawacha Samakamanto Sama ajiwo, sama wayamo, sama sati, sama samadhi. The good thing about chanting is that you don't have to be in tune and you don't have to sound good because it's just beautiful, because it's the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. So the Buddha awakened under a Bodhi tree. We actually have Bodhi trees around the campus, you might notice. We have some trees with that heart-shaped leaf. And just there, I feel, as a teaching, he found protection and safety at the root of a tree. He decided this is where he was going to get free. 
And so the legend goes, it has very mythical proportions, the legend goes that on the night of his awakening, the demon Mara came to visit him. And I think Devin mentioned Mara as this representation of all the obstacles that we encounter on the path. So first, Mara sent his daughters to seduce the Buddha. And the great being was unmoved. And then Mara sent armies of fierce demons and warriors, arrows and spears, so scary, to frighten the Buddha away. And the arrows turned to flowers before they landed at his feet. And then very lastly, the last big obstacle, and this is happening for a lot of us often, Mara planted doubt in the Buddha's mind. He said, who are you to be sitting here in this seat? This isn't your seat. You're not worthy. You're not good enough. You can't sit here and get free. And who isn't assailed by this demon of doubt? Have you had a little bit of that? So many we have these voices that say, I'm not worthy. Metta, yeah, maybe for other people, but not for me. And we always have this sense of not quite doing it well enough. So I like to think that the Buddha felt that, just like we do. And then maybe he reflected on his goodness. Maybe he reflected on all those moments that he kept going, and he did one more breath mindfully and another one and another one. The patience that it had taken, his qualities of commitment and kindness, clarity, his faith, his trust. And in that moment said that he placed his hand on the earth and the earth responded. It said, of course, this is the legend, that there was a huge earthquake. The earth shook in recognition that this was his seat. He said, the earth is my witness. I will awaken. And in that moment, it said his mind was free. So he had this mind now, free of all sorrow, all stress, all lamentation, grief, fear, anxiety. So the story goes that he spent some weeks in the woods just hanging out, being like, whoa, (laughs) what just happened? How is it? This is peaceful. This is calm. And what he had seen was so profound, he thought, I don't know if I can teach this. How am I going to describe this deep liberation of heart and mind so different from often the worlds that we're living in? And then again, it said that a beautiful deva from a celestial realm came down and they begged him and they said, there are beings who can figure this out. The celestial being said, please, out of compassion for others, for the welfare of beings, please share what you have discovered. 
And the Buddha was moved. He saw that they were beings like us with little dust in their eyes who had the great potential to get free. And so he walked from his forest where he had been to Deer Park at Varanasi in India. There's a beautiful stupa now. Deer still live in this park. And he met five of his old friends, also ascetics, also seekers of the truth, who were practicing there. And there was something about him that was different. And so he taught them the Dhammachaka Sutta, this first teaching. This is what he chose to teach his very first students, this turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. So what was that? What did he teach the very first time? So he taught the four noble truths, these Arya Sachang, these truths that are noble. And we've been asking here, some in our conversations and questions, what is really true? Right? Because we can see how maybe our thoughts often aren't so true. And our perceptions are misguided. So what's really the truth? And these are the four that the Buddha pointed to. He said, these are the four. And they are noble. They're to be understood. They're to be realized. And so this is what I want to talk about tonight, is these four noble truths. Often these four are compared to um, going to see the doctor. So if you've ever broken a leg or an arm, we go to the doctor. The doctor does x-rays and examines and does all these tests, and the doctor gives a diagnosis. The doctor says, your leg is broken, broken bone. But then he says, the good news is, It will heal. You can get better from this broken bone. And then he gives us a series of things. He might put a cast on the leg. He might, we might have to do PT for a long time. He'll say, it might take a while. It might take some work, some patience. But eventually your bone will heal and you'll be okay. So this is this formula. The Buddha is the doctor. And he gives us a diagnosis. He says, there is suffering, there is dukkha. He says, this is the arising of dukkha, the origin, the source of dukkha. This is the problem, the diagnosis. And he says, and dukkha can be healed. Dukkha can be released. There is cessation of dukkha. And the fourth truth is then the way, the medicine. How do we get there? So dukkha, its origin, its cessation, and the way. So the first noble truth, there is suffering. We often hear it in this way, the translation of dukkha arya sachang. 
This one is to be understood. But dukkha is one of those words that's kind of tricky to translate. And it's so we're so early in this translation process that we often hear suffering, suffering, the first noble truth of Buddhism is suffering, and this is maybe changing now, but for a long time there was a misconception, like, oh, it's so heavy, it's so, Buddhism is just all about suffering. But the literal translation of this word dukkha, du is, means the center of a wheel and cause the space around it. And so it's really dukkha is just pointing to a bad-fitting wheel. It's like a wheel that's out of alignment. So it's kind of a bumpy ride. When your hub isn't really fitting the wheel, it's kind of bumpy. It's stressful, not very comfortable, out of alignment. So that's really what this word dukkha is pointing to. There's something about life, and you might have felt it even today, that just doesn't feel in alignment often. We're stressed. We're trying to control what we can't control. We're trying to get it right. And things keep slipping out of our control again and again and again. It's unreliable. There's something very true about this in big ways, even in small ways. We're not deeply suffering all the time. But even just the experience of being alive, there's a kind of rub, isn't there? These bodies, can't control them, can't really control our minds either. So how have you noticed this bad fit here this week in retreat? Or maybe for some of you, this is a really familiar teaching. Can you remember the first time you noticed? For me, I was a freshman in college when I first heard this teaching. I had a lot of suffering. I just come from four years of high school where I was trained to work very hard. And I was a very conscientious young person, so I was really trying to get it right. I was getting straight A's. I was doing all the extracurriculars. I was an athlete. I was doing all the things. I was trying so hard to be the perfect person. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And so that year in college, I was rowing. I had gone to this particular college because I got a scholarship to be on the crew team. And so I was rowing on the crew team. And it was that year, it was a pretty good crew team. We were a lightweight team. And so we had races on the weekends. And all eight of us on our team, we would be weighed. We'd get on a scale, and they would weigh us and make sure that we were underneath the cutoff line for the lightweight crew team. So we all had to weigh under a certain amount. For me, a lot of my anxiety and stress was around body image. This sense of not being good enough, trying so hard, doing all the diets, the calorie counting, the just really trying to get it right. And I, at that point, I was always under, under the cutoff line. I was trying really hard. I was under the cutoff. But our team captain... Remember her so well. She was the best rower. She was very good. 
she was always just right at the line. And it was all public, right? So we would each take our turn right before the race, get on the scale. They would check it off on the clipboard. And I remember one weekend, it was a big race. It was an important one. I think we were at UW in Seattle. And um, we all weighed in. And Sonia got on the scale. And she was 0.1 or 0.2, some tiny little percentage over. So she put on all her sweatpants all over sweat clothes, layers and layers, and got on the treadmill and started running to sweat it off. She's going to sweat it off. And other teammates joined her. We got on, and we were you know, on our treadmill side by side to help her. She went in the next morning, the morning of the race, got on the scale again, still like 0.05, like tiny margin. I remember watching. Sonia had long hair. I remember watching as she handed the scissors to our coach and pulled up her hair, and the coach cut her hair to the scalp so that she would make weight. And I just had internalized, internalized, internalized this sense. There's always a mark. You have to make it, right? And so I would go to the gym day after day. I would weigh myself daily, get on, take my magazine, whatever shape magazine I was reading, and get on the Stairmaster. And I would look down the line and see all of these other women on the treadmills, just like me, with their magazines. Some I knew, some I didn't know. And I could see my life. I felt like, you know, I could do this my whole life. Counting the calories and trying to, just running hard and trying to make it and trying to make it and battling with my body. I saw the years stretching out. I saw older people doing the same, same thing. And I remember it was right around this time that I started reading about the Dharma and I very, there was a moment in time, it was like some summer break after my freshman year. I was working a very boring job and I was watching my mind, you know, plan my next workout. And I had this moment of seeing, like, this could be my life. This could just be my life. And I have a choice, right? I could choose to do it differently. I could choose to do it differently. And I think that was the moment where I really was on then in this territory of of noble truths. I saw the pain. I saw the rub. And there was just a little bit of space knowing I don't have to be beholden. I don't have to stay on the hamster wheel. I just felt like there had, had to be something more. And so this is what the Buddha says in the sutta. He says, birth is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. Getting what we don't want is dukkha. 
And in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. There's something I think that's actually a relief, isn't it? When we hear that, isn't it kind of a relief? Oh, it's not just me. We're all feeling this rub in our own very particular way. And I've heard in groups today, I mean, retreat takes so much courage, doesn't it? Because we're face-to-face with this kind of dukkha all day long. We're with ourselves, and the body is hurting, and the mind is running wild. Someone said in a group today, I'm just assaulted by my thoughts. Not the case. It's just so much work. And here we are in these bodies. They're not getting any better. (laughs) Right? It can be really disturbing to be like looking in the mirror, oh, gray hair and wrinkles coming and all these new aches and pains. And then we know, oh, it's just actually going to keep getting worse. And then what happens? Then then we, if we're lucky, we're going to get older and we're going to get sick and eventually we're going to die. Right? It's not the situation. It's... <laughs> and in retreat, we can't really avoid that truth. Right? This is it. We feel this. This is what's happening here. So we're here in retreat. We're in with dukkha in very small ways. Right? Our knee hurts. We can't figure out the posture. The walking just feels so strange. And we have a lot of anxiety or whatever it is the particular dukkha, and then we have all of the personal stories, what's happening at home and the relationships and the mistakes we've made. Sometimes we can just feel assaulted by regret, remorse, and so much anxiety about the future, not just like, how is it going to be when I go home and try to explain to people what I was doing all week? (laughs) But all of it, what we have to hold, our responsibilities, right? We're responsible for children and work. And so we have the personal, all of it, the anxiety. And then look at our society. I mean, the grand scale of things right now, climate change. And deep injustice and oppression everywhere we look. Politically divided. This is the case of dukkha. So everywhere we look, we see it. The first noble truth. And I would wager to say that I think it was pretty similar for the Buddha. That he lived in a time of division the caste system in India. He himself tried to stop war. There was warfare going on at his time. He did what he could. He dismantled the caste system. That was pretty cool. (laughs) But he also saw this on a grand scale, and he said, we don't turn away. He said, this is really noble. We have to understand it. We have to be penetrated. We have to infuse our body and mind with this truth. And of course, we have to titrate. We we can't be overwhelmed. Sometimes we get really overwhelmed. But this is what we're doing here. We don't really advertise that. We don't say, like, you're going to come and see all of the many layers of suffering. But he did say it's noble. We have to understand it. So second noble truth. 
This is the origin, the source, or the arising of suffering. Can we notice when suffering is arising in the mind or in the body? Have you noticed that? Like you're going along fine and then something happens, pain or some memory, and all of a sudden, it's like the armies of Mara coming. And this is a simple practice instruction. It can be very practical. We just notice, how does suffering arise? What are the conditions that lead to my anxiety, to my fear, to my not knowing, my confusion? We're just watching with very simple mindfulness, just as we've been saying. We show up again and again. We learn, what are these conditions? What's the nature of this dukkha, big or little? So in particular, the Buddha taught dukkha arising in three ways. And you can try these on for yourself. You could probably make your own categories for how dukkha arises. But in particular, he really focused on this word tanha in Pali, which means thirst or craving. So he said there's these three kinds of tanha, three kinds of craving. The first one is sensory craving. The second one is craving for existence. And the third is craving for non-existence. So check this out in your mind. And I want to say this craving, it's not shameful. It's not bad to judge yourself. We all have these cravings. This is what the Buddha said. We have these. It's true. So sensory craving. I'll just say I'm I'm very aware of some of these because I've lived in simplicity in the woods for the last year or so. I've noticed a lot of cravings, right? We don't have access to the kinds of foods that I'm accustomed to or... Uh, no electricity in the cabin. I don't have devices just at the fingertip. And the cabin is quite rustic. It's heated by wood. So just like Roxanne, I've been out there chopping wood and heating, and the wood fire is very sweet. But the floor is really cold. The floor of the cabin is always cold. And I've worn out. I brought a couple of really warm socks with me, but I wore them out this year, worn out. So when we came out a month ago, I was like, I'm going to get new socks. (laughs) So excited about this. And I really love Darn Tough socks. Great company. Um, And so I I got like new pairs, three new pairs of Darn Tough socks. And I watched the mind get so excited about this. Like, I'm going to be set. (laughs) And I get these socks. They're like, they have little animals on them. so excited. And of course, they came, and yeah, there's actually a lot of pleasant Vedan. I'm wearing them now. It's so fun to be here. I'm wearing the socks. But there's enough practice to know I'm probably not going to get lasting happiness (laughs) from these three pairs of socks, right? They're going to wear out. Often the mind gets kind of disenchanted from all that anymore. There'll be probably new shiny pair of socks. I mean, darn tough is good because they'll replace your worn-out socks. So that's also nice to look forward to. But it's not reliable, right? These sensory pleasures are passing. 
and we get kind of worn out with them after a while, right? The sunset ends. The meal is over. And we can be driven. There's another hamster wheel. We can spend our whole life just going after one pleasurable thing after another, the shiny objects. Do you notice yourself doing that even throughout the day with the nicest walking path? (laughs) Right? Like, oh, I'm going to spend a long time looking at the orchid. I do that all the time when I'm sitting, just like looking at the flower. Because <laughs> my mind is looking for something to something that's more, right? That's pleasant. And so can we notice if we're living our life like that, just driven by looking for the next thing, the next thing? No problem with enjoying, right? We can enjoy these things, but we know that they don't last. We know they're not going to deliver the kind of long, the deep longing for lasting happiness that we want. So craving for becoming, this is a big one. I think this one is a lot about my story, my crew story. Like we're trying to be a perfect person. Right? And the culture tells us this all the time. You just need to get that job, right? Have the right partner. And then everything will unfold. You have enough money to buy a nice house, have a nice car, you'll be comfortable, be okay, just have a nice circle of friends. That's the formula. Isn't that the formula? It's such a cruel message. It doesn't take into account any of the conditions that some people have access to this and other people don't. Right? It puts us all in each of us. It's your responsibility for your happiness. You go out and get that stuff. If you fail, it's your fault. So cruel. Right? We're taught that the grass is always greener. If I just had that, that person had. I mean, social media is such a good example of this, isn't it? All the shiny pictures. I'm great. I'm good. Sparkle, sparkle emoji. So we believe, we believe in these stories. We believe that there's a self that's going out to get all this stuff, just got to get the conditions together and then keep them. And isn't it, I mean, sometimes there is moments when we feel like we got it all together and then it inevitably falls apart again, right? The conditions are constantly falling apart and falling apart and falling apart and people are aging and getting sick. This is happening all the time. We can't, we can't. It's, we're out of alignment, Aren't we? We're out of alignment with reality. The psychologist Bruce Tiffs calls this our fundamental aggression towards reality. We're like trying to make it work and trying to make it work. We try so hard, even in retreat, aren't we? We're like really trying to get it right. And so we're coming into alignment, right? When we start to see the truth of of impermanence, that things are always coming together and falling apart and coming together and falling apart, and we can't control it. And actually, there's nobody behind the screen to do that, right? The truth of not-self, this truth of the shakiness of reality. The story isn't so true. And when we can learn how to do that, to rest in the free fall, in the coming together, the falling apart, the coming together, the falling apart, the insecurity, then the confidence, this flow, 
right? This Joseph says the empty phenomena rolling along, when we can be in more harmony with that, when we see it, we know it as a truth, there's more peace that comes, right? We're not craving so much to become something different. And then craving for non-existence. This one is also really interesting. You might have seen this in just, I don't want to do this anymore. Right? Anybody thought about just leaving? (laughs) This is that mind that just checks out. Like, it is too hard. It's too hard. You might do this when you go into your room. Like, I just don't want to be mindful anymore. No more. (laughs) I had this a lot in the cabin. I was like, I just want to watch a movie. (laughs) Right? Just the pleasure of being in somebody else's story for a while. So we bow a tanha. We just go to sleep. Right? We binge on Netflix. We get all distracted. This is why our devices are so seductive. So there's again, there's no shame in this. The Buddha was just naming. This is who we are as humans. We want to be somebody special, and we also are just done. We don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, so no judgment. No judgment in the broken leg. We just have a broken leg. But we want to get healed, right? We want to be free. We want to heal our our broken bone. So the third noble truth. That one is where the Buddha says you can heal it. right? You can be free of these cravings. And again, the practice is very simple. You just notice when suffering ceases. And you've had many, many moments of these could be when you shift posture, the knee pain eases a little bit, or the anxiety you've been sitting with, it somehow abates. I've heard some of you tell me, you were anxious when you came, and then second day kind of got more into the rhythm, and it was a little better. So we really want to notice, we want to be awake for these moments when the mind releases. The great Thai forest master Ajahn Buddhadasa, he named these Tadanga Nibuto. He said, we're having moments of freedom all the time in the heart and mind. And it's so important that we do. Because if we were assailed all the time, all the time, we didn't have these breaks, we would really go crazy. So in your practice, notice what's absent. When is dukkha absent? And what qualities are here with the absence of dukkha? Is there a little more connection, a little more calm, a little more fortitude and courage or confidence? So here's a poem. It's called At the Tea House, 6 a.m. by Holly J. Hughes. Sunrise at the octagonal hut. Beyond where two decks meet, a lizard does push-ups in the sun. I see the green, chattering world through the window. I see my image in the window. Both are present. Are both true? A bee enters the hut, buzzes insistently against the window, but the window won't yield to his wishes. 
I want to show him the open door. Say, this world through the glass is only an illusion. But I don't. How long will he hurl himself against the dusty glass? How long will we believe that we're not free? And so we want to notice, wake up for those moments of freedom. And sometimes in retreat, these happen in big ways, right? The Buddha just had a really big Tadanga and Nibuto. There was cessation of dukkha and it didn't come back. So we can trust that as we keep walking this path, it's going to keep happening. The mind will be trained to release in this way. And often this begins with seeing the impermanent nature of things. We see the arising and passing, and something in the mind starts to understand. In the Dhammachaka, he says, one possesses that wisdom that understands the arising and disappearance of things, which is noble and penetrating and leads to the destruction of suffering. And so in the sutta, at the very end, he's teaching his friends, right? And there's this one friend, one of the five that he's teaching, named Kondanya. And Kondanya sees this. He sees the arising and passing. He says, it says, whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. And he's like, wow. (laughs) And the Buddha knows. He says, Kondanya understands. Kondanya understands. There's just a sense like, oh my gosh. And I think you've had insights like this before, haven't you? When like, a light bulb goes off and you see things in a different way. And it's like grace. You didn't make it happen. There's just something descends and the mind understands. Often in the suttas, it's an exclamation. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. So there's this sequence that we read about. We see impermanence. The mind starts to have viraga, which is translated as dispassion, nibbida, disenchantment, cessation, naroda, and letting go. But I like translating viraga as peace. Right? Sometimes dispassion and disenchantment, that sounds like, wait, am I not going to feel anything anymore? Like it feels kind of bland. But dispassion and disenchantment is very peaceful. Disenchantment, nibbida, that's just like coming out from under the spell. We're not um, under the spell of wanting anymore. And those of us who are greed types, you know, I used to be so driven. I've got to go do this big whatever thing, right? And wanting this and wanting that and wanting this. And it's interesting. After this period of retreat, of course I still want things. The sunset was beautiful. Like really enjoying sensory experience. But there's a kind of like, it's all right. <sighs> there's less enchantment. I'm good, right? A kind of okayness with it all. So peace, independence. Nibbida may be translated as independence. We don't need all that stuff. So just the invitation, grasp your hand. 
And just make a fist with your hand. And you can squeeze pretty tight. Notice and feel, feel the sensations here. This is tanha, this is craving. Clinging, heat, tension. Right? Do you feel that effort, the effort? We don't have time. I was going to have you do this for a while. <laughs> it gets worse if you keep grasping. <laughs> right? Keep grasping. So you can imagine aching, heat, pressure, tension. Okay, and then what happens? How is it? Just let the hand open. You rest it down and then feel. What does the hand feel like? Maybe there's release. Maybe there's ease. Kind of tingle. Surprising. Maybe it's not what we expected it to feel like. It's often the third noble truth. It's not what we think it is. My teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, to bring an end to suffering, we need to cut through the dualistic habits of perception and the illusions that hold them in place. Not by fighting or suppressing them, but by embracing and exploring them. So we're not pushing away sensory experience or all of our quizzical, whimsical, mercurial minds. Not getting rid of any of that. We're exploring it. And so the fourth noble truth. There's a story in the sutta about a person in the woods. There's a woodsman, but I like to think about them as non-binary. So they're out and they're they're cutting trees, they're tending the forest, and they come upon an ancient path. And they've been living in a village that's kind of run down, it's kind of barren, and yet the villagers there, they don't even know that their, their town is just a little run down. So this woods person is out there, and they find this path, and they start to clear the way. They're clearing out the undergrowth and the over the brush. They're clearing it all out, clearing it all out, clearing it all out. And finally, they come to the ruins of this ancient city. And it's a beautiful city. It's a little also in ruins because nobody's been living there for years and years and years. But this woods person, they can tell it was beautiful. And they run back, they run back, and they tell the villagers, they say, hey, I found a path through the woods. And we can go and we can live in this city. This beautiful city just needs a little polishing. And the Buddha says, that's the Buddha. That the wood person is the Buddha. He found this ancient path, this trail through the woods. He cleared it, took some work, took some patience. And we are the villagers. We're the ones that can now, we're invited to go live in the city, and the city is liberation. The city is freedom. Just takes a little bit of walking. So that's the path. And I chanted it before in Pali. It's often um, framed around wise or right, wise view, wise intention, sama, diti, sama wayamo. But a new translation of sama is complete. Complete view, complete intention, complete speech, complete action complete livelihood, complete effort. 
complete mindfulness, and complete samadhi. So it's integrated. Right? Often we feel so splintered and divided and we're scattered all over. What if this practice was one of coming into coherence? Completing our view, our vision. Complete mindfulness. That's what we've been doing here. And by way of summarizing this whole path, it can be framed around just knowing what leads to happiness and what doesn't. This complete effort that knows how to cultivate healthy mind states and beneficial mind states, metta and compassion and joy and equanimity and patience and trust and confidence, mindfulness. We're just cultivating all those. We are using complete effort to do that. And the mind knows with wisdom what to let go of. And over time, those unnecessaries just fall away on their own. We don't have to fight against the anxiety or the fear or the sorrow. We can trust the mind will find its own way. It will find its own way through the trees. And so just to conclude, there's one other phrase in the Pali that we hear often that's called yata bhuta nyanadasana. Sometimes it's like, things are like this. Things are this way. I like to think about yata bhuta nyanadasana as the way things have come to be. The way things are coming to be. And this is what the noble truths are pointing to. The Buddha simply just said, this is how the things have come to be. This human condition. And through wise effort and complete kindness, complete gathering of the mind and continuing with our mindfulness, we can find that city. This heart, every human heart knows its way. It has that potential in it to find its way to freedom. And so this wonderful French monk that Roxanne quoted, Mathieu Ricard, this is what he says. This is the way enlightened beings relate to everything. Their world is made of rainbows. Everything briefly appears, then gradually or suddenly disappears. Imagine how your relationship to the world would change if you realized it's all made of rainbows. You're sitting on a rainbow. You're holding a rainbow in your hands. You go to sleep on a rainbow bed and cover yourself with a rainbow blanket. You eat and drink rainbows. You put rainbow clothes on a rainbow body and you make love to a rainbow mate. When your rainbow house disappears, it's no big deal. That's just what rainbows do. And so just like rainbows that are made of water and sunlight and clouds and space, we're just knowing how things are coming to be. We're knowing their ephemeral nature. 
In some ways, they're made all the more beautiful because we can't hold on to any of it. And as we learn about this, there's deep peace that arises. The deep peace of the Buddha putting his hand on the earth and learning how to let go. And we come to know that this is really the way to true freedom. And so we can sit quietly for a moment or two, just letting the words settle. This is the way enlightened beings relate to everything. Their world is made of rainbows. Everything briefly appears and then gradually or suddenly disappears. So when things disappear, it's no big deal. That's just what rainbows do. Thank you for your kind attention. And we have a period of walking. And then we'll meet back in the hall for chanting. We'll chant in Pali and English this evening. So we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.